0: money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. For this week's episode, uh, we're going to make it like light, light and easy. It's just Sheila and me, because the two of us have not been together this year so far. <laughs> it has been a very busy year, but for whatever reason, because of movement and travel and everything else, we've only had a couple of episodes together. And I think just because of, like again, a lot of activity going on, particularly in the regulatory space, it just felt like, okay, let's you and I just step back. Uh, take stock of where we're at and maybe just see where the, where the conversation goes. Uh, so, anyway, what do we start with about that? You actually yourself had to testify in right, uh, yeah. Sacramento recently. Tell us a little bit about that. What's happened there? This is the Californian uh, legislation that's up yeah. For grabs.
1: Well, I think we've talked about this about the show before, but given the Complexity of the U.S. Congress right now. I think again, just seeing what happened with the speaker vote, uh, and the fact that we have a Republican House and we have a Democratic Senate. Uh, you know, it's it's a bit of an interesting time and at, the, at the federal level in the legislature, and a lot of activity is happening in the states. We all saw that coming. All well, those of us who you know are in this uh, saw that coming. But the flurry of activity is a bit surprising. So Illinois, New Jersey, New Hampshire a bunch of states, you know, throwing their hats in the ring. Uh, and California, of course, remains a, a major power player, uh, fifth largest economy in the entire world, no ethnic majority, you know, and sets the tone for a lot of of uh, the conversation around this stuff. So last year, by way of a little history lesson, there was a bill that was passed almost unanimously through uh, the Senate and Assembly, the California legislature It was vetoed by Governor Newsom. And a new version of that is, almost certain, I would say it's certain to pass uh, this time around and this next session. And the question becomes, what is that going to say? What is the bill going to say? And so this particular hearing wasn't about bill text. It was more about framing crypto. And I think the title of it was like, it was a very negative title, right? And so the frame on the conversation was, what the heck is the point of crypto? Why does it have any value whatsoever? And the questions that were asked of me were very much like people being, I mean, they weren't being somewhat polite about it depending on who was asking but very mm-hmm. much like what's the point of this why does anyone care about this why are we mm-hmm. even here today what's almost like a microcosm
0: right? of the way that the whole world is asking a lot of these questions right Correct. now obviously Correct. in ignorance but yes yeah
1: yeah and yeah. so it was interesting it was not to believe this touch it was two panels so one the first panel was D uh, dfpi which is california's state you know regu- relevant regulator uh, that would be tasked with rolling out what a regulatory regime looks like in this space similar to the bit license in new york the idea is there's something similar here that would be run by dfpi and uh, it was some law firm partner and the second panel was me and uh someone who i was the president directive director of the california consumer alliance or consumer federation who came out swinging i um, mean this guy had rolled out you know stories of people uh, legitimate stories honest stories that were told about people who had been rugged or who had been scammed uh, in the crypto environment and then his entire premise was basically you know uh, crypto is a gigantic scam, a waste of time, That's essentially. Cool. and Yeah. And so yeah. it became this really interesting, you know, I'm going to call it a debate. It was very respectful for the most part, for the most part respectful. And the questions that were being asked were not crazy. I you know I got the tulip bubble question. I got the, you know, who even cares about this question? I, I do think that it was reflective of the tenor around, you know, what we all spend all of our time doing all day. It was just very interesting because it had been a little while since people had been that black and white about it, right? Most yeah. people, I think, well, I'll yep. say PFTX, right? Are, we're very like, clearly something here is interesting and important. We don't really get it, right. but, you know, benefit out, And now a lot of that has, uh, well, we have the case to make yet again.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, but it's the stuff we always talk about. It's like, it's it's the focus on... The wrongdoing of a crowd of people that have gathered around a technology and used its current state of development, its current state of regulatory framework, its, its current state, I suppose, of speculative fervor to abuse people. Like it's like it's a yeah, ripe, wild west environment. So the, all, all of the focus goes on all of that. That's what crypto is to them, this madness. And it's understandable that that's the perception because that's what makes the headlines. But it's just so difficult to try. It's like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Just think about yeah. the tech. Just think about like that and, and the application and the real world applications that I do think continue to grow. But I agree with you. It was, you know, it wasn't that long ago that yeah, there was now this. All right, it's time to wake up and notice this. But I suppose I'd say one thing. And you know, first of all, I want to, well, not first, but let's let's deal with this. But I'd like to get you to give me an idea what your answers were to all of this. But um, <laughs> yeah. I do think that the in a very indirect way, the flurry of activity at the state level. Some of them may be coming on with very harsh overtones and are probably going to have some draconian measures attached to them, but there is a validation to this at the same time, right? Like it's like it's not, no one's calling for bans and instead you've got these regimes that are emerging feeling that they have to do something because they have to do something because it exists, because it's here, because you can't avoid it, right? And so even, even in the midst of the madness of FTX and all of the fallout and negativity that's come from that, there's still this, all right, (laughs) what are we going to do about it? We can't ban it. We're going to have to regulate it. And that, in a a way, is not ideal because it's probably piecemeal regulation because it's ad hoc and it's not well thought out necessarily. But there's a certain validation that comes to that, I suppose. I'm trying to put a bit of a a, 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 a silver lining on this cloud.
1: I I agree with you. I I I think we are beyond the time when any credible person is talking about bans, right? And that's just, it's just, Making people understand that's not a thing. I do take some heart in that. I would call it a sort of resignation to the reality uh-huh. that crypto is here to stay, right? grudging begrudging, begrudging acceptance. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But there, there is a resignation, a, res, a resigned awareness of the stickiness, you know, of this, yeah. of this stuff, right? So I do think we've at least come to that. And you know, I'm kind of it's just very funny. I kind of think when way to, way to think about it, I've talked about this before. I don't think crypto's done itself any favors, because I mean, I'll tell you the stories that this this person my co-panelist was telling, they're truly heartbreaking stories. I mean, truly, truly horrible, awful, true, you know, I have no reason to believe they're not true, true stories. And I think the fact that there hasn't been a broader denouncing of this kind of behavior from, you know, a a lot more people in the ecosystem is problematic. We don't do ourselves any favors by A, trying to dismiss this stuff or pretend it's, you know, tiny minority and not coming out swinging against and so, yeah. frankly, Michael, to answer your other question, that's kind of the stance that I took, right? Is like, this stuff is absolutely atrocious. It's horrible. These people are terrible people. They should be stopped, you know, um, all of that. Because I think it's, I think that's true. I have the, the merit of believing that very fervently. But I also think that for those stories, there are other stories of people who have found this to be the first time in their financial lives they felt empowered. And those mm. are also true stories, you know? And so I think kind of casting it to say anytime there's an opportunity to make a lot of money seemingly very quickly you're going to attract as we've talked about a bunch of sociopaths it's just (laughs) what's going to happen right and i was laughing because after this hearing we went to lunch at a place um, named after sutter's mill
0: and sutter's mill of course yeah yeah, where gold
1: was found in california and the gold rush happened and pretty sure that the the random gentlemen who you know came across the country in their covered wagons to find gold were not like the most savory characters right (laughs) this is uh, kind of the way that it goes Uh, now at some point that that diminishes and those people you know either they make their money on the backs of others and they go away or they leave or they find the next thing to be you know excited about and take their sociopathy too but there's no question that money is a big draw And any time you've got the kind of potential that was observed in this space, certainly, you know, even a, a year and a half ago, you're going to attract those kinds of folks. But I, I think we don't do ourselves any favors by being as okay with that as we are perceived to be as an ecosystem.
0: Yeah. There's a reason why the Wild West analogy is used a lot, right? And, it, and, yeah. it, and it, it, it's often used in a negative sense, but it can be used in a positive sense. as like, it's just to say, look, this is inevitable in this environment, Wild West's coming. But did, you know, did California end up, you know, becoming That's right. this? That's right. This ongoing, never resolved cesspool of bad behavior. I mean, some would I mean, argue, yes. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. It's certainly, it's certainly, if, if it's bad, it, certainly it's bad behavior if it exists, and it does in different ways, evolved in different ways. Let's just say that much, right? <laughs> yes. But, um, but I think that you, re- you made a really good point about the about the community not necessarily uh, giving enough acknowledgement to that, and this is, I think, part of the problem as well, is that because of the sort of speculative nature and that i'm in this for my tokens kind of feeling that people breed around it right you and i've talked about this i talked about this with uh with neha uh, narula in, in recent episode as well like how do we deal with the reality of speculation as this drive as this sort of like yeah. inherently difficult thing to remove it's actually kind of quite valuable it does lubricate activity we do know that a lot of the development that's happened in this space some of the coolest inventions like zero knowledge proofs and things that were at least the advance of that technology that's happened in the crypto world has has been funded in large part by the amount of money that's coming in. so there's a lot of good in that but i think the fact that people get personally invested in a particular token of any type or a particular experience and a particular exchange means it's all about me and what's in it for yeah, me and yeah. so I, th- I feel like mm. you know when the backlash against FTX and, and Sam Bankman-Fried has been vitriolic anger from, from the community, there's no absence of that. We all know how absolutely pissed off everybody in crypto is about this, but it's it's framed around this, give me my money back, you know, which is understandable, yeah. but it's like we haven't created room for these. There's a sense that people feel very upset about the. The average, you know, like like Kevin Reynolds, uh, our editor-in-chief, was telling me about, you know, a dry cleaner in his neighborhood who lost $250,000 to FTX, mm. right? A dry cleaner. I think the reaction people have is like, oh, that's bad because that's going to be negative for crypto and therefore negative for me. Rather than just you know, think about the poor man or the poor woman, whoever it was, think about the poor person, yeah. right? Like what is the that acknowledgement, that capacity, the humanizing, the is of what this means? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know why that's absent. And how do you get this amorphous mass of a community? You know, we can't tell them what to do. But like, You know, I'm just
1: reminded when I did a bunch of press around, um, you know, layoff rounds and and post-Terra Luna, right? There was a bunch of just discussion around that. And I had so many reporters tell me that I was the only person who had taken a beat to express empathy for the victims of that. which I just found shocking. I found that shock. I found that really (sighs) disturbing, very deeply disturbing because I think in our obsession and focus and, and and look, I admire that drive. And I think to some extent, if you're somebody who's building a really complicated, hard thing, there is a laser focus that happens, but we can't lose our humanity around all of this. You know, I mean, it it really just, that to me would be a, a true tragedy. If we were so divorced from the humanity of the experience that we forgot to embed some of that into the positive side of it too, right? Because because again, yeah. what are we accomplishing? We're accomplishing empowerment of users. I mean, fundamentally, that's what we're talking about here, whether in the governance form, whether in how we you know, reclaim our data, uh, whether in the financial system, this really fundamentally is about empowerment of people and communities. And you can spin that however you want politically, but the bottom line for me is that's the draw. And so people are getting hurt, particularly when they get hurt. If we don't take even a beat to kind of acknowledge that is the tragedy it is, I find that very disturbing. Now, that being said, I want to switch gears because this is getting a little depressing because I want to make sure we don't leave without congratulating you and the Coindesk team (laughs) on the Polk Award, which is outstanding. So it's kind of funny to me, right? Because I was thinking about this when I was in SAC. Because on the one hand, there's kind of this general like, you know, what for crypto? You know, why? Right, whatever. On the other hand, you've got this like super established group that gave this award, recognizing not only was that peak journalism at its absolute finest, if I may say, but also, you know, this story captured was about this industry, right? It's at the same time getting, it's an interesting juxtaposition about that, like the sort of solidifying and credibility and wow, crypto journalism has kind of made it to this next level, but then crypto itself is kind of, we're re-questioning, you know, as a society, some of those fundamentals. So I, I, I would love to, yeah. well, a, you know, just hear from you about that announcement and what that was like. Did you see it coming, you know? But yeah. also, how do you, how are you feeling about that kind of juxtaposition, right? Like being, yeah, yeah so recognized. Well, thank you, but
0: thank you so much. I mean, yeah. I, of course, it was all me. I did the whole thing. It's all up. You know, I, I <laughs> take all like- the credit <laughs> entirely. It's all Michael Casey. I mean, in fact, this is the thing that I feel a little guilty about, right? Like, you know, people are congratulating me. This was, you know, Ian and and. And Tracy, yeah. for the most part, it was also Nick Baker, their wonderful editor. It was Kevin Reynolds who drove the team and, and put, put them in this position. It was people like Nick Day and others that have weighed in and really just helped frame the way that we cover this stuff and do it from the right perspective. I'm very, very lucky. I pulled together an incredible team of people who are, are just fully dedicated to this, as I, as I said in a, a, a blog post to Opinion piece to just kind of like frame why I think this matters. We deliberately went out and hired a combination of professional journalists who've been doing this stuff. People like Kevin Reynolds, 20 years at Bloomberg, and Joanne Poe from, you know, many, many years at CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, and Fox Digital. People, you know, Emily Parker was at WSJ and New York Times and the State Department, and Mark Hoxstein was at, you know, American Banker and you know, editor in chief over there, and then Pete Paschal from, from, you know, from uh, uh, Mashable. So we built that higher level of professional journalists who bring something that whether we like it or not, despite all of the critique of mainstream media that Silicon <laughs> Valley likes to sort of dish out, you know, it there is this professional approach to doing these things that you just yeah. can't avoid. And yes, there yeah. is going to be a world in which a more decentralized media world, you know, it, there is real value to the citizen journalist, you know, on social media that I don't doubt that that kind of collective brings power here, but you really need this process because there's a certain amount of integrity that comes from getting a source to talk to you and building those relations it's a very personal thing ian allison is the embodiment of the guy who gets his sources to trust what he's doing because he doesn't yeah he doesn't burn yeah, them and he gets the story right and and so people go to him and tell him things that's what journalism's all about and you take it takes training to do that right so we combine that with what we think the mainstream media which has a lot of the the former you know good news organizations have the former in spades what they're lacking is crypto knowledge which is you know a real understanding of how do you read on-chain data how do you actually understand the dynamics of this conversation so you don't get caught in this sort of misinterpretation so we you know a lot of young digitally native crypto savvy reporters that we've built under the auspices of this of this team I think have come together in a way that I'm just incredibly proud of but on a higher level why does this matter i am just so thrilled it lifts crypto journalism into a higher plane. It was so wonderful to look through the list of winners on that Polk Award press release and see the New York Times and Bloomberg and you know Reuters and the Washington Post, ProPublica, and there's CoinDesk in the middle of it. And actually, I think one of the highest That's reference awesome. within the within the press release itself was the story that we broke. And then all of that was just was again a moment of arrival, a kind of a milestone, as I put it, that I'm proud of. The thing that I'm really interested in here is, is, can we start a conversation about this role that we all need to play, all journalists, in addressing this industry? Because as my good friend Pindar Wong uh, said to me some time back, and he was talking about when I took on this job as the chief content officer at CoinDesk, he said, you have a responsibility because what you're talking about with these public blockchains is that they're a public good. They're the commons. They are, yeah. and they need to be protected yeah. from, from self-interest, from, from those who would take charge of this. And abused it, and so your role as the fourth estate is a little different from what it is in the classic construction of that. You know, the press is the fourth estate vision of government that you right. hold government to account, and those are our public representatives. So you protect the public good by holding government to account. Here, you're actually protecting this public ledger, and it is something that's separate from government, but it is a very much of a public thing. I was just a really smart way to think about it, and and so. As I, you know, as I now think about like, what is Coindesk's role, why is it important that we hold, up, hold these standards? It's precisely because this industry, if it's going to thrive and, and achieve what it says it wants to achieve in terms of its decentralized principles and the value, the empowerment at the edges, as opposed to the powerful in the center, it literally needs to keep doing that day in, day out. And that's, I think, what we have at least shown we can do in the case of the FTX case it's bringing those self-interest, those private interests to account, holding them accountable, shining the a yeah. lot of transparency on the bad actors and sort of pointing out what's a good idea as opposed to the snake oil, right? So that I think is, hopefully we've elevated that idea, which is important here. You're right.
1: reminding me, Michael, of something that I don't know that, that I've hit upon enough, right? Which is to say that the accountability... In this, the case of FGX specifically, because of you know Ian and other and Tracy and others, uh, came from within the ecosystem, if you will, right? Mm, and yep. and so that's really it's kind of critical to note that because it's without really right, I, and I don't know that I had yeah. clocked that until you just said what you said because it didn't yeah. come from the Wall Street Journal or from you know the New York Times or whatever. It came from an organization and people who are similarly invested in the growth and development and positive, you know, positive aspects of this ecosystem and who yeah. felt it incumbent upon themselves to be professionals and do what their job is. Right. Is and to you're, say, for,
0: you're, you're, pretty the journalist yeah. there, but I think what's also interesting, I don't know who Ian mm. source was and i never would ask him to, and he's certainly not going to reveal it, but yeah. my guess is it was somebody, somebody in the crypto yeah. industry as well. Right. That's right. So, yeah. This wasn't one of your, Anti crypto. This wasn't Nuriel Rabini who who discovered the balance <laughs> right, sheet, right? right yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it was, but my my understanding for everything that Neil in has suggested is that's not the case at all, right? So it is very yeah. much that the industry itself, like the right people, are doing the right things to try to expose what needs to be exposed to advance the industry as a whole, right? Somebody else that comes to mind here who once said to me, like you know, that there's things that need to happen in the interest of the of the industry. Uh, and, that's, and that's Gary Gensler, who <laughs> <laughs> would always ju- justify in, in the, you know, some of the debates and conversations I had with him at MIT. It's in crypto's interests to bring it under a regulatory umbrella. Like it's only mm-hmm. if you bring, and I think that's a sound argument. I, I, I can't make in, in, any bones with that idea. I think that's, and mm-hmm. I think that the way that, that Gary looks at what he's doing here with this really remarkably ramped up attack attack might be too strong a word, ramped up actions uh against against the space you know last couple of weeks is that he thinks that this is what he's doing he's he's sort of regulating by enforcement but it's nonetheless building that that umbrella and that's going to build this thing i know that the counterpoint that from the industry is obviously well no this is ad hoc and dangerous and there needs to be clearer guidelines and that can come in the form of legislation or guidelines either way this is what's happening and as part of that backlash i think it's it's being fueled by this moment in time where everybody feels like we have to do something there's nothing there so got to do something. Here's a, there's a nail. Let's whack it with his hammer. And I understand the instinct, but it's occurred to me that like, if you look at the Paxos case, like I literally do, I still, I'm people try to explain it to you. I do not understand how anybody buying a stable coin could, could think that there is an expectation of profit, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the pillars of the Howey test, the problem, which something is considered an unregistered security. Um, I, I I don't I, I literally don't understand how that works. Like, I what is some argument that maybe because its value sometimes falls if its reserves aren't there that I'm I'm buying it on the bet that it's going to. I, that's just struck me as, as 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 odd. But having read this Fortune piece a couple of days ago about one of the major concerns that people have, and I'm not casting aspersions on Binance itself here, I've got no idea whether it's accurate. But nonetheless, the argument was that Binance, who's in the middle of this, there was concerns about. Binance like forcing changes from uh, one stablecoin USDC into BUSD, and so what struck me is this is monopolistic behavior. You're using a bi- mm, platform, mm-hmm. you're using the power of the Binance smart chain. You're using it sounds like Microsoft in its old days working with an operating system. This sounds like should be the concern of the FTC, is where I'm going with this. This sounds like this is an antitrust concern what is the SEC doing, you know, dealing with <laughs> monopolies? And, like, and, yet, and I also think that monopolies are the sort of thing that the crypto community could get could get behind. Like, f- that's exactly what crypto is supposed to be, is like breaking down this centralized power. So uh, what I'm getting at is like, I, I, just, I feel like we're, we're just in this moment where it's a turf war, ad hoc, whatever you can do. But in fact, there's possibly good actions that could be taken here But it's all being framed in this weird framework of of the Howey test.
1: Yeah. So let me just be super cynical uh, to your point about shouldn't we all be behind, you know, anti-monopolistic approach to this? Yes, because you and I are in this for different reasons than a lot of people. And money is very distortionary. I am skeptical that if someone sees an opportunity for their thing to be the winner-take-all thing, they're not going to jump on that. And that's just me being a cynic an observer of human behavior, right? And I and think that we're going to see- That's why antitrust laws exist, yeah. We're just going to see, exactly right, we're going to see, I think, a, an increasing divide, which I think we're already starting to see, uh, that's really going to be about motivation. And the people who are in this to make money, and that is their dominant motivation, or may start to have a particular orientation to things. And the people who are truly in this for philosophical reasons are going to have, perhaps, a different approach to certain kinds of things. And I do think that an antitrust frame is something that might show some differentiation, but this will all play out because we're not really at that time yet. I take it's an interesting point about what is the SEC doing is a very interesting question that I think a lot of us are asking ourselves as a general matter across a variety of topics, uh, because certainly the question about authority is one that is not as well settled as I think some of us believed it was. Mm. And so. There's a lot of question about the SEC's uh, bounds of its authority or the lack thereof seemingly uh, in the view of, of certain folks. So my hope is that we'll continue to see enough new growth and new entry into this space that the creation of a monopoly will be very challenging because you'll have new entrants that are pushing and challenging and, and, and forcing essentially others to reckon with, you know, new ways of thinking about the technology and new new technologies themselves. Um, but at some point, we are going to see some consolidation because that's also part of the inevitable growth of any kind of new ecosystem. And we'll have to kind of see how people respond to that opportunity when that presents itself
0: that up and put put together and diplomatically said as always, <laughs> Sheila, thank you. That was fun. It always is. I was really enjoyed. yeah, Michael, things, I love it Two ways these things these things tend to work. All right. I hope that worked for all of you as well. listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with back together again, I believe, uh, with some guests with another edition of Money Reimagined. We'll see you then. Bye.
1: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. The announcements by Abby Levine and her executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest.